Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Savor the flavor every Sunday as the delicious dialogue starts right here and right now. I welcome you to my kitchen because recipes and tips for marvelous meals are shared here on this show. This hour, you'll gain ideas for how to eat well, how to live well. And of course, this show is for people who love to cook or love to eat or love both for that matter. Each week, I'll tell you about my favorite wines, the newest recipes and trends. We'll share tips and tricks from the best authors and chefs across the country. And I'll feature foods and restaurants and gadgets that you'll want to know about. And of course, I hope you'll visit chefjamie.com to become a more confident cook and find a bevy of what I think are the best recipes to add to your signature collection. We are starting it off right this Sunday because St. Patrick's Day is just two days away. And it's the only time that corned beef and cabbage, the classic Irish dish, gets any attention. It's corned beef's time to shine, right? But when it comes to corned beef, people either love it or they don't. And since I grew up in a Jewish household, I love corned beef, specifically a corned beef sandwich with coleslaw and Russian dressing on warm, freshly baked, but not toasted, rye bread, and preferably from a good Jewish deli. That's how I learned to eat corned beef from my mom. But there are multiple ways to make corned beef at home for the upcoming Irish holiday. And so I thought we would discuss corned beef, the preparation in which traditionally a brisket is cured in a brine solution along with lots of various seasonings and then slowly simmered until it's tender and flavorful. Now, corned beef can also be made from the beef round. Both the round and the brisket are relatively tough cuts of meat, and they're best cooked by slow, moist heat cooking. And a good corned beef, in my opinion, should be really tender, almost fall apart tender, not toothsome. And it should be briny, not salty. Now, the brine for making corned beef is similar to the brine used for making pickles. So it's fair to say that corned beef is essentially pickled beef. And one of the key ingredients in making corned beef is a curing salt called prog powder, or it's often called pink salt, which is what gives the corned beef its distinctive color. Now, whether you're simply making a corned beef sandwich or you're planning to prepare the classic corned beef and cabbage come Tuesday, it's always important. And if this is the best chef's tip that I can share, the corned beef must be sliced against the grain for tenderness. Now, this applies to most steaks and especially the less expensive cuts, but the really juicy, delicious, wonderful ones like flank and the deckle, which runs along the ribeye. Um, you always want to cut your meat against the grain. And if you're putting a steak down on the cutting board and going to slice it thinly for a steak sandwich, let's say, you can actually see which way the grain runs in the protein. Take your knife and offset it at an angle and cut against the grain and you will see the most beautiful tenderness. It really is the most important tip that I can give you. Now, as for choosing the right piece of beef when buying corned beef, 
you always want to look for ready to cook, not pre-cooked meat. And the meat should be nice and firm and it shouldn't be too bright a pink color. If it's too bright pink, then they've definitely used too many nitrates. Now, you can do a home cure or corn your own beef. It's easy enough to come by at a grocery store or your butcher, but especially around St. Patrick's Day, the diehards like to cure it themselves. And it depends on how much of a kick you get from doing everything from scratch. You will need, though, to start today because the brisket needs to sit in the brine for 24 to 36 hours and 48 at most, and it is a really grand DIY, do-it-yourself project that you can boast about come Tuesday when everyone comes to celebrate at your house. But I do believe in the store-bought version of corned beef. Just buy a good quality corned beef from a reputable butcher. And when it comes to cooking to perfection... I believe you keep your carrots, your potatoes, and your cabbage from turning to mush by making sure that you cut large pieces. At least two to even three inch chunks are best when it comes to the carrots and the potatoes, and if you like to throw in onions as well. And then I throw the cabbage in at the end because I like it to have a little bit of texture to it. Now, you can boil a corned beef. You'll get great flavor. And by the way, you can boil in water or beer or a combination of both, which is what I like. But why boil when you can slow cook? I think the best corned beef and cabbage comes from a slow cooker. There's no doubt that making corned beef and cabbage in your slow cooker, low and slow, is very ideal. You simply prep the corned beef. You place everything in the slow cooker, the liquid, the beef, and then you add the vegetables a little bit later and the cabbage at the end, but the slow cooker does all the work. It takes about four to six hours depending upon the size of the cut, but the beauty of it is that you can let it go long and it's really that easy. And then all you need is a condiment with a kick, in my opinion, to serve along with the meat. I suggest that you make a fresh mustard sauce, which you can do very simply by just mixing mustard powder and water together. It has a beautiful, brilliant bite to it. And if you know Coleman's, the mustard that's been around the longest in the little yellow can, if you mix it with water, you will get a mustardy paste that will no doubt bite you back. And it is what the Irish consider real mustard and the only thing to serve with corned beef and cabbage. I have a recipe with a few more ingredients, an Emerald Isle mustard sauce that I'll share before the end of the hour. And I do suggest an intense horseradish will also heighten the flavor of corned beef as well. Uh, It's definitely your preference, but both of those, by the way, not for a wimpy palate. If you like something a little bit more subtle, go with a stone ground mustard or make a honey mustard sauce from scratch and it'll do just fine. If you really want to get fancy... I suggest that you make my simple Irish soda bread with currants, which even a non-bread maker can make. And the recipe is posted at chefjamie.com. And then pour a pint of Guinness and dig in because I know that Tuesday is going to be truly delicious. By the way, another quick chef's tip when it comes to great corned beef at home. I always throw in a small handful of brown sugar when I'm braising the meat. I think it offsets the tartness of the brine and the Guinness you plan to drink, (laughs) and it always makes it even more delicious. I have multiple corned beef recipes and a couple of other mustards posted on the site, so check it out. And I'll be posting my best 
continued tips for St. Patty's Day and everything green on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram leading up to the holiday. So please become a fan and a friend at Chef Jamie Gwen. There are a few other things you won't want to miss at chefjamie.com this week as well. My Think Like a Chef feature, which it's always my goal, by the way, to make you a better cook in your own kitchen, teaches you the methods and the fundamentals to great cooking. And this week's Think Like a Chef is the secrets to great French toast. Sweet and rich and eggy and buttery. French toast is one of those meals that always hits the spot, whether you're having it for Sunday breakfast or whipping some up for a midnight snack. And so I've given you all the best tips I can on pan perdu, or in French, rather, as they call it, lost bread. It's great with leftover bread, in fact. And I happen to like mine stuffed with some delicious combination of jam and mascarpone. Also on the website, you'll find the weekly dish. It is the Irish soda bread with currants, and it's super simple to make. And I think it's a a mighty flavorful one. You'll also find a cocktail you'll love. It's what I call the maple leaf. It's to celebrate my love for maple syrup and the comeback of bourbon. And then the seasonal celebration, before it gets... uh, too warm across the country, although in Southern California, where I live, we're having a heat wave. For those of you across the country still battling the cold, consider a roasted butternut squash risotto for dinner tonight. Naturally sweet chunks of butternut squash that meld into a creamy, delicious risotto, and you get a beautiful orange color, and I think a delectable taste. So do check it out. And don't touch your dial, because... There's lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. I am delighted to welcome Claudine Papin to the radio. She's coming up next. She is the daughter of the famed Jacques Papin, of course, and she's sharing her new cookbook called Kids Cook French. She's cooked along with her dad for so many years, and she has great insight. Also, we're highlighting whiskey, and in fact, a true Irish whiskey for St. Patty's Day celebrations. Jack Teeling of the famous Teeling Whiskey family is coming up. Plus, we're going to inspiralize you. Do you have a spiralizer? Do you make zucchini spaghetti? Well, the queen of spiralizing, Ali Mafucci, is stopping by, and you'll love her new book. Stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with more fabulous food right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio with truly grand guests today. According to Jacques Pepin, the moment for a child to be in the kitchen, and I quote, is from the moment they are born. And there is a book that just proves that so exactly. It is the new release by Claudine Pepin, Jacques Pepin's daughter and his sidekick, who we have so enjoyed for years cooking alongside the great French chef. And the book is entitled Kids Cook French. And it is an introduction, of course, to the art and the joy of cooking that makes for cultured kids with better eating habits. Because Claudine says, who knows, your child just might be the next great chef. 
We have all very much enjoyed watching Claudine alongside her dad prepare delicious meals and share cooking techniques on PBS for years. James Beard award-winning series, of course, and it's her talent and history in the wine industry, her husband's role as a faculty member at Johnston in Wales, and of course her father, the world-renowned chef Jacques Pepin, who have attributed to her notoriety. But it's her passion for food and her gracious charm that come through, of course, on TV and in this book specifically. Here to share her new cookbook release entitled Kids Cook French is author Claudine Pepin, and I am delighted. Claudine, welcome. My goodness, that is a wonderful introduction. I hope I live up to it. Well, you do, of course. I'm glad to have you. Welcome back. It's been a lot of years, um, in fact, since you've graced the show, but I'm delighted to share with you, uh, with my listeners, your continued passion and, and your plight, um, of course, to get kids cooking. Congratulations. The book is beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I don't expect that this book is going to change the culinary world, <laughs> but it was a really fun and, and heartfelt project. And, and fun and challenging and inspiring all at the same time. One of the things I love about the book, and not only the recipes themselves, but your father's illustrations, uh, was the... And my daughters. And your Some daughters. are my daughters. Are they stories too? I love that. Yes, so some of them, some of them are my father's, but um, a lot of them are are Shorey's as That's well. That's very cool. I love the English French translation as well. It feels so very classic to me. It was probably the biggest challenge in doing a book of this sort. I would think because a verbatim cha- a verbatim translation is not possible. You have to feel it, and my French is very good. I speak French. I speak English. And, but my written French is not as good. So we scoured to find a translator that we all agreed with. And lo and behold, it's actually one of Shory's teachers from Colorado when we lived there who taught at the French American School who we've stayed friends with. Oh, you're kidding. And this was done via, you know, every little bit of technology that we could possibly use. Sure. And she lives in Strasbourg, hmm. and she she's just, Christelle is, is amazing. That just seems only appropriate. Tell us your philosophy on cooking. Start at the beginning, if you would, because you stood in the kitchen, I'm sure, for as long as you can remember alongside your dad. And today you carry on those traditions with your daughter, but then you've brought that element of exposure to the whole world. Well, thank you. Again, thank you for for saying so. I think that the philosophy that I have on cooking is probably going to make some people mad. Um, I think that especially with kids, what ends up happening is kids have kid food. I don't believe in kid food. Good, I, I don't believe either. in making it a smaller portion, mm-hmm. maybe not as spicy, and maybe serving it earlier in the day if you're having a dinner party at 9 o'clock. But we, didn't, we never had kid food. We never gave Shory kid food. I certainly never had kid food. So when someone comes up to me and says, my 10-year-old won't eat anything other than pizza, hot dogs, and chicken fingers, mm-hmm. I look at them and say, well, really? Because the three-year-old drove themselves to the store and that's what they chose? <laughs> that's very true. I agree with you. If you feed your kid those foods... And then when they're 13 years old, you put veal, a veal chop and some 
some Brussels sprouts and, and, you know, and polenta in front of them, they're going to say, what the heck is this? Well, of course. Have you ever had a chicken nugget, Claudine? Yes, I like a chicken nugget. Oh, you do? so does my daughter. Okay. Why not? It tastes good. But it's not our staple. No, it's not your it's not your daily. It's not your standard. And I agree with that. It's our once every six months. Yes. My daughter used to think that McDonald's was the airport restaurant. <laughs> the only time we ever went there was, was when you were when traveling. We were in an airport. That's very funny. Um, but I th- I think you make a really wonderful point. I mean, I was exposed to sushi at five. Oh, sure. We'll eat you under the table. Oh, I'm sashimi, sure. Sashimi, though. Because yeah. that, yes, yeah, sashimi, that was what my mom called tuna fish. Okay. Oh, works, very nice. Works for me. I mean, it is about the exposure. It is about the enlightenment and bringing your children into the kitchen, as you say, and, and proof by the new book, Kids Cook French, is what really sets the standard for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and nobody, nobody applauds Shori because she ate a Brussels sprout. <laughs> I mean, she ate a Brussels sprout. It was on her plate. Right. It's great. I mean, mm-hmm. she does have a few foods that she doesn't like, and, and we give her a bye. Asparagus in particular just makes her shudder any way you cook it. Really? Um, She just really doesn't like it. But, you know, on the whole, she eats what we eat, and she always has. And when you were growing up with your dad, what was it like eating at the dinner table? What was it like... Long. (laughs) Long. Cooking with him. It was long, yes. The long French meal, right? Exactly. Yes. Um, I can't say that I was the kid that that ran to help in the kitchen. I didn't. My father was a chef, and I set the table. He would give me a pair of scissors and tell me to go get parsley or chives or whatever we needed from the garden. Mm -hmm. I did what I did, but I didn't hang on his every move or every word. It was really kind of a process of osmosis where one day somebody asked me a question and I was able to answer it about food and I thought to myself well why on earth do I know that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and I realized it had just been from being around great food my entire life so and Shori doesn't run to chop and help in the kitchen but she sits there she does her homework and I cook dinner and and you know and she says, Mom, what are we having? And I say, use your nose. What do you smell? Oh. And mm-hmm. so she's I like, like mm, it smells like bolognese. I'm like, well, no. <laughs> or <laughs> yes, you know, depending. Yeah, but that's a, that's a good guess. you got to love a kid that can smell bolognese. I just, oh, yeah. I just a couple weeks ago was talking about the best bolognese and all the Italian traditions and, you know, milk, dairy or no dairy, milk or no milk. Oh, boy. Well, we, we have our bolognese, and Shori doesn't like anybody else's bolognese other than mine. Okay. Is I it, am the queen of the bolognese. The queen of the bolognese. Then do tell us. In my us, own house. Does it have dairy? It does. It does. See, I believe that meat but sauce. But right in the beginning. Yes, and meat sauce deserves dairy. Yes, but no carrots. No carrots. Carrots. I don't do carrots or celery. No, I do a lot of onions, a lot of garlic, but I don't do the carrots and celery. To stay away from the sweeter side? No, I just, I'm too lazy. (laughs) Okay, so you just, you heard it here, right? Claudine Papin, the great daughter of the great chef Jacques Papin, just admitted to laziness. And we all do it in the kitchen. I totally agree. I want things that are easy. If I'm cutting onions and garlic, well, that's plenty. That's enough. I'm good. If you have kids, if you know a kid, if you know someone with kids, 
This is the book that will make for budding chefs. It is a beautiful new release entitled... And French students. And French students, yes. If you have a French teacher in your life, get them this book. It'll make their teaching a lot easier. A lot easier. This is uh, the new book release by Claudine Pepin with illustrations by Jacques Pepin and Shori, of course. It's called Kids Cook French. And you can find your hardcover copy along with an ebook version on Amazon, of course. And you can follow Claudine on social media at Claudine Papan, as I always love to know what you're cooking, Claudine. So um, I stay tuned. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yes, of and course. And thank you for taking the time. Uh, and thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We do have the best culinary thinkers on this show, Claudine. You are no doubt one of them, and I am grateful to have your presence here. Oh, well, this is a lot of fun. Can't wait to do it again. I look forward to it as well. The delicious conversation continues. You wouldn't dare touch your dial. Now, would you, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio? You just heard from Claudine Papan. Who could be next? Stay tuned. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with the continuing juicy conversation, honoring the Irish today. In fact, seeing that St. Patrick's Day is just a couple of days a week, I thought it only appropriate to toast with a whiskey. For more than 250 years, the Teeling family has been crafting Irish whiskey. In fact, in 1782, Walter Teeling set up a craft distillery in Dublin, commencing a 230-year tradition of distilling for the Teeling family. And the latest generation of Teelings, brothers Jack and Stephen, are now carrying on the family's legacy and forging a bright new future for distilling in Dublin and for Irish whiskey. If you recently saw the Wine Spectator article that mentions how Irish whiskey is going way beyond blends, then you know there is a global whiskey revival and it is in full swing and Irish whiskey is the growth leader. Well, the Teeling Whiskey Distillery is the first new distillery in Dublin in over 125 years, bringing the craft of distilling back into the very heart of Dublin city center. And I am delighted to share with you the Teeling story and to teach you how to taste whiskey just in time for St. Patrick's Day, as Jack Teeling is joining us live from the distillery in Dublin, Ireland. Glad to have you, Jack, and welcome. I'm delighted to be here, and thanks for the opportunity for us to get the the Teeling story out there. Yes, of course. And seeing that it's just a couple of days before St. Paddy's Day, uh, it seems um, only necessary and important if you would um, tell us about your new distillery and the fact that you are very much honoring your heritage with a three copper pot still operation. I mean, reviving the traditional style, right? Yeah, our whole ethos is that we want to be respectful to uh, respectful to our own past and also the rich providence and heritage of Irish and Dublin whiskey in particular, but also confident enough to do it in a more modern way. So we have uh, managed to uh, procure three traditional Dublin-style pot stills where we, we will be producing triple distilled uh, styles of pot still and single malt whiskey. Um, but we'll be doing things a little bit differently. We'll be dr- 
bringing in different uh, mash bills and different ingredients and uh, uh, using different casts to try and drive uh, uh, a different spectrum of flavors to Irish whiskey. You do, though, still have to um, oblige by the rules of Irish whiskey making, right? Because there are some regulations that in order to call your whiskey an Irish whiskey, um, you have to live by, right? It must be aged on the island of Ireland and distilled, correct? Yeah, it's, uh, Irish whiskey has been made for a long time, and it, it's like anything, uh, it's heavily regulated uh, uh, by the revenue, obviously uh, trying to control all the excise tax that they can. And uh, since the 1980 Irish Whiskey Act, uh, it's been very clearly defined that you have to make it from a certain diastase of cereals, um, and it has to be distilled uh, on the islands of Ireland and matured for a minimum of three years uh, in oak casks. Um, and, uh, you know, most, most Irish whiskies are aged longer than that, but that is the minimum. So, so that is, even for new entrants coming in, uh, um, I suppose it's quite different to American whiskey, where you can actually release whiskies that are younger. Right. Uh, it's very hard in terms of working work capital commitments. And I think the softer style of environment that Irish whiskey matures in, it produces a lighter style and a more approachable style of whiskey, but it does need those three years to, to, to let's say, extract the character and flavor that Irish whiskey is. And how long are you aging the new Teeling whiskey releases? Yeah, we're lucky enough that we're, we're, we're a relatively new uh, uh, company um, set up to revive our family trademark, but our previous family company was a company called Cooley Distillery, and it was bought by... Beam uh, Inc. In, in, in 2012, and we've managed to secure some, some of the original whiskey stocks that, that we produce. So uh, we have whiskies that, that are aged up to 30 years in barrels. Um, oh. Our standard offerings, the two that are available in the U.S., is our small batch, our Teeling Whiskey small batch, which is on average between five and six years, and uh, our Teeling uh, single-grain whiskey, which has just recently been launched, uh, which again is around five or six years, and, and I suppose what we're doing differently with them is, is innovating around uh, different uh, casks that we've used to mature our whiskey in, and also how we bottle it and what strength is bottled at. So, what should we look for when it comes to tasting whiskey? Can you teach us to taste? Because I, I know that you have a, a great appreciation for the whiskeys that are made around the world, and you alluded to some U.S.-made whiskeys, in fact. I mean, seeing that whiskey's taking the world by storm, there, there are different flavor profiles and there are different palettes for each of those flavor profiles. Yeah, and I, and I can appreciate them all, and uh, I can appreciate the craft that goes into creating uh, the flavor and the character of, of well-made whiskies, be it they from Japan or be them from America or be them from Sweden, where uh, there's a growing single malt industry there as well. Um, and I, you know, in terms of, of, of depreciation, I think for me, you always want to taste the underlying greens where it came from, be it malted barley or is it corn or is it maize. Um, and uh, obviously the, the science goes into the actual distillation process to where you want to create a nice clean spirit um, and then you obviously want to put into some good wood or good barrels which will impart probably more flavor than people actually expect so um, two-thirds of the flavor of, of any whiskey um, comes from the actual maturation process so it takes a huge amount of character and personality from the different woods I was in but also the environment that you find find uh, uh, you place your cast delivers a huge amount as well so so for me, when you're tasting a whiskey, uh, you really want to try and taste all the individual components that went into making it. Um, and, and 
to do that, uh, I do think you have to uh, try it at room temperature. Uh, I think you have to have the appropriate glass that allows you to capture the aromas in it. And uh, what I would always like to do is I'd like to, to, uh, to nose and taste it straight, uh, but also bring in an element of water. So it's like breaking the seal. It's like a, a beautiful flower where you, uh, you add a little bit of water for and the whole bouquet of aromas are released as, 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 as you do that. And certain people's uh, noses and palates uh, require a little bit more water to it, so I do think it's uh, it's an element of testing and uh, uh, and playing around with to actually understand what you need to do to make sure you can appreciate all the subtle flavors and characters that goes into a whiskey. He is Jack Teeling, and he is continuing his family legacy with a true Irish whiskey as we continue our conversation leading up to St. Patrick's Day right after this. Highlighting whiskey for St. Patrick's Day celebrations, we're dishing with Jack Teeling, live from his Dublin distillery. And if we were going to have a, a whiskey tasting, let's say, for St. Patrick's Day, uh, corned beef and cabbage, good Irish soda bread, lots of currants in the soda bread, my favorite part. Uh, yeah. What would yeah, you... <laughs> I, I think it's any, anything that uh, gets you to, to sample good whiskey. One thing that we're doing quite a lot of now, which I think is a lot of fun and really is a little bit different as well, is, is matching up uh, um, cheeses or chocolates to our whiskeys and presenting them in a, in a fun, uh, enjoyable, easy way to understand and to try and marry up uh, the subtle flavors in, in a certain type of chocolate to the whiskeys, and uh, oh, that's nice. uh, we find that it's a, just a, a, a little bit of a different way to do it. And again, even um, we just finished uh, an event in, 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 in New York where we had a great uh, whiskey team dinner, and you find the right chef who can uh, appreciate your whiskey and can incorporate it in, in some way into the dishes that, that they produce uh, you can have a lot of fun with it as well leave us with this if you would jack what is the dublin food scene right now what is it like uh, that you're in the heart of dublin once again and distilling uh, there are certainly i think an ex- extraordinary opportunities for um, food and wine food and whiskey and so much more as the food scene around the world elevates yeah it's a very exciting time for dublin culture we're young vibrant city uh, we're just getting over the worst recession that we've ever seen um, but people are we have a very entrepreneurial nature and and uh, it's very much all about local produce um, and value for money um, not formal but an informal place where you can come in and it's a changing of the pub scene it's rather than going to pubs now the younger people are going and sitting down and enjoying good food with good drinks and mm-hmm. there's an explosion of of new uh, younger chefs um, doing something that that kind of excites the the younger people there, and it's also it's all about craft beer, it's all about craft cocktails, and it's all about Irish whiskey. So, yes. so what we're doing, <laughs> hopefully, we're part of that vibrant scene. And, oh, uh, you are. Uh, and forging a new future for Dublin and for Ireland as well. Yes, and you're no doubt reestablishing production in the centre of Dublin. Uh, and I think that's really extraordinary under your family name to continue the legacy. These are telling times 
for Irish whiskey. So um, find a bottle uh, or a few for that matter and taste away and be sure to taste the spirit of Dublin in the new Teeling whiskeys now releasing from Jack and Stephen Teeling, keeping the family name alive. Jack, it was a pleasure. A very happy St. Patrick's Day to you. I thank you for sharing your passion. Same to you and all your listeners. Thank you very well, much. Thank for you. There's more delicious conversation in your radio. Stay tuned. You just might learn something. Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll be right back. This is food news that you can use, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. If you follow her blog, then you've been inspiralized. Yes, the definitive cookbook for using a spiralizer, the kitchen gadget that turns vegetables and fruit into imaginative low-carb dishes, has just been released. And it is the creator and the recipe developer behind Inspiralized.com that is delivering the goods. Ali Mafuchi is here to dish, or rather spiral, really, on her widely popular blog. In fact, the website with more than 2 million page views per month, Ali is sharing a revolutionary way to eat vegetables, transforming Everything that you can think of from zucchini into pesto spaghetti, jicama into shoestring fries, and plantains into tortillas for huevos rancheros. Technical tips and tricks are shared. And the book, by the way, has quickly become an Amazon bestseller. So pull out that spiralizer you have tucked away or plan to order one and listen here because adventurous cooks unite. You are about to become inspiralized. Allie, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you. I think that was the most fun introduction I've written in a long time. <laughs> yes, that was very, very kind of you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Okay. The, the machine itself, the gadget, is a spiralizer. And you are getting us inspiralized, but what actually is the tool? Sure. So the spiralizer is just a very simple, easy, inexpensive kitchen tool that secures to your countertop. Some are actually handheld, but the most popular ones are easily securable to your countertop. Okay. And you load a vegetable on the spiralizer. There's certain requirements and guidelines for that, but once you have those vegetables, you load it on and twist the handle, and the machine turns those vegetables or fruits into noodles. And then you can take those noodles and you can incorporate them into meals. So obviously making veggie-based pasta is going to be naturally more healthy. So that's the basic gist. Okay, and there are some specifics as far as what you can or cannot use, right? I mean, we know zucchini noodles probably the most popular and what I've been cutting by hand for a really long time. Uh, but there are specific vegetables and fruits, although you've been known to push the boundaries. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I mean, the, the tool itself, you know, big, heavy thick vegetable can be tough to spiralize, but I just kind of power through it and you end up with these, you know, luscious noodles from something like a sweet potato or a rutabaga or, you know, even a plantain. Okay, but apple, beet, uh, cabbage, you talk about carrots, of course, cucumber, 
uh, zucchini, the number one, um, plantains, I love that idea, and parsnips, which I'm big on. But when it comes to jicama, I have never roasted or cooked a jicama before. So dish with us on spicy jicama strings. Yeah, of course. That was actually uh, a recipe I made for my blog, and I kind of strengthened it up for the cookbook. It just, you know, spiraling is so versatile, and it really shows how excited you can get with mundane vegetables, such as a apple, for instance, or that's a fruit, but an apple, um, you can really transform this into something way more exciting and, you know, interesting to eat, and that's what makes the whole movement in itself fun. But those jicama strings, they're spicy, you can top them on a salad, you can put them on top of a burger, you could have them just as a simple side. They're really, really delicious, so I hope that you try it. And the jicama gets crispy, because I would think as juicy as it is, albeit a crunchy vegetable its water content is rather high. So it has great crunch, but does it dry out in the oven? No, so these, the reason I actually call them strings is because I used to have this favorite potato chip when I went to school down south, and it was slightly soft, kind of we call them floppy chips. Hmm. And I sort of reinvented that on a spicier level with the jicama. And if you broil them at the end, they will crisp up, but in general, they're a bit softer. So it makes them really ideal put on top of, you know, a burger or, like I said, a salad. Um, leave us with this. Some tips as to buying a spiralizer, what to look for, um, what's most important in our, our newest kitchen gadget purchase. Of course. There are plenty of spiralizers out there. And, you know, if you want to get your feet wet and want to try just julienning a zucchini and tasting that, that's a great place to start. But they have countertop spiralizers and, and handheld ones. I recommend getting a countertop Spiralizer. It's just much more versatile. You can use those bigger, you know, vegetables, mm-hmm. spiralizers. If you have a handheld one, you can really only do carrot and zucchini and cucumber. Um, and I actually have the spiralizer that I recommend is the one that's by me. It's the official spiralizer by Inspiralize. But if you're just <laughs> looking around on Amazon or at a store, just really spring for the countertop spiralizer. That's my biggest piece of advice. And, and great advice. And congratulations to you. We know that um, at Inspiralized.com, you do have a spiralizer of your own. Um, and I look forward to having one in my kitchen soon. Um, so as your Inspiralized um, Mecca uh, grows. We wish you continued success, of course, and I, I'm thrilled to see all the fabulous dishes that you've brought to life. It is the definitive cookbook for using a spiralizer. Uh, really creative, really versatile, uh, definitely one of the hottest food gadgets I think that every great chef should have. And uh, I wish you continued success, Allie. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course. The book is called Inspiralized, Turning Vegetables and Fruit into Healthy, Creative, Satisfying Meals. The author, Allie Mafucci. Check it out. The excerpted recipe at chefjamie.com. I'll leave you with what I like to call my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary inspiration. Seeing that St. Patrick's Day is Tuesday, I'll leave off with my Emerald Isle mustard sauce. This mustard sauce comes straight from Ireland, and it's a decadent twist on the traditional, both savory and tart at the same time. It's a simple mustard sauce that you make with dry mustard and cidered vinegar, a little bit of unsalted butter, some freshly grated horseradish, and you temper with egg yolks to get that beautiful texture. I'll post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen and hope that you'll check it out and that you'll visit chefjamie.com in the days to come for more 
delicious inspiration. Learn all the right moves from my kitchen to yours and find out what we're cooking now with seasonal inspiration every Sunday as we sip and savor because this is where knowledge and inspiration is served up every weekend. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening and I hope you continue to eat well. Well,